just as just a way to an observation. Our break lasted 15 minutes, and you know what that means. <laughs> okay, it's supposed to be 10 minutes, so that means I expect to be out here later. Okay. <laughs> okay. We are uh, in the first session. We reviewed the sixth. We began really with the sixth gift of prophecy, and so we asked what that gift meant. And so we went through. In one way, we stated that it is the capacity or ability to utter inspired message. Now, this being the case, that we needed to then examine uh, the Greek word used and the meaning of of prophesying. So we we saw that it was some kind of, it originally that prophesying had to do with a state of ecstasy that a person attained with or without music. Then eventually we uh, said later on then it became primarily that of speaking of divine inspiration. And with that, we went in to explain that uh, it is possible for a person to be under divine inspiration and don't know it. And the good example that we used was Caiaphas, the high priest during the time Jesus Christ was uh, crucified, given in John chapter 9, uh, 11, verses 49 through 52. Then we went in to, to mention a few things about prophesying. We did indicate that uh, uh, it is proclaiming an inspired uh, revelation. And in that case, it involves the idea of revealed one, which is instruction, that the type that we have in our scripture. The second aspect of that is foretelling something that lies in the future. And the third is to tell of something hidden from view. With it, we made several statements about prophesying. And one of them is that certain activities involved in prophesying are under the control of, the, of either the person prophesying or someone else. And went through all that, eventually we came to this conclusion that today, when we talk about prophecy, that is really basically means to, uh, two things. Now, God's will revealed by, uh, about the future or hidden facts. That when we talk about prophecy, it reduces to no doubt about uh, God's message, but one revealed that is in our scripture. However, that the other part of it is the communication of the future and hidden facts. And that part is what I say is still functioning today. That those who argue about the cessation of prophecy, I think they are on laptop with this idea of the scripture. But there are other aspects of prophecy that's not ended. And I said, for example, the kind of prophecy we saw in the, Old, in the New Testament period uh, 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 
was primarily dealing with something in the future. This was the case with Agabus that we cited before break, and we were to go back from there in Acts chapter 11. So Agabus, uh, we read from chapter 11, verse 27 through 28, he reads, During, during this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus stood up and through the spirit predicted a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. Now, another illustration of the gift of prophecy, given by the same man, is his prediction of what will happen to Apostle Paul when he went to Jerusalem. As we read in Acts chapter 21, verses 10 through 11. Acts and actually whole Acts at least the next six passages I think will be in Acts Acts chapter 21 verse 10 reads after we had been there a number of days a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea from Judea coming over to us he took Paul's belt tied his own hands and feet with it and said, The Holy Spirit says, In this way, the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. Now this prophecy was fulfilled uh, as Agabus uh, predicted. Paul was arrested and bound with chains. As we read, look at verse 21, I mean verse 33 of that Acts chapter uh, 21. Look at verse 33. Verse 33 of Acts 21 reads, The commander came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Then he asked who he was and what he had done. Now eventually, the commander handed Apostle Paul over to Governor Felix, a Gentile as implied in Acts 23, verses 23 through 24. Acts chapter 23, verses 23 through 24. It reads, Then he called two of his centurions and ordered them, Get ready ready a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen and 200 spearsmen to go to Caesarea at 9 o'clock. Provide mounds for Paul so that he may be taken safely to Governor Felix. Now, another illustration of the gift of prophecy that is not clearly associated with a specific prophet is the message of the Holy Spirit that resulted in the first missionary work of Paul and Barnabas, as we read in Acts chapter 13, verse 2. Acts chapter 13, verse 2. And hold on to that Acts 
Acts chapter 13, verse 2. I mean, you hold on to that chapter anyway. He reads, While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Now for sure, there is no direct statement that implies what the Holy Spirit said was communicated through a prophet or prophets, but that is to be deduced. Now this is because the instruction stated in this passage in Acts is preceded by mentioning of the existence of prophets and teachers in the church in Antioch in verse 1 of this chapter 13. Look at verse 1. It says, in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, a Manian, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. So it seemed to me, or it seemed that a reason for mentioning prophets in this verse is to convey that when the Holy Spirit communicated to the church about the mission of Paul and Barnabas, that it was through the exercise of the gift of prophecy by one or more prophets. Now, by the way, there are other references in the New Testament about those who have the gift of prophecies. Although we are not given any specific example of such individuals exercising the gift. But the early church recognized this. Example, Judas and Silas were described as prophets. In Acts chapter 15, verse 32. Acts chapter 15, verse 32. It is Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the brothers. So here we have two men who are known as prophets. So there must, there must be something they say that the church recognized them that way. Likewise, the virgin daughters of Philip, the evangelist, are described as such in Acts chapter 21, verse 9. Acts chapter 21, verse 9. It is He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. So we know there were many prophets in the New Testament period in the early church. Now what these ladies of course prophesied was not disclosed. So we should surmise that whatever they prophesied was for the benefit of the early church that was not relevant to the church at large. So in any event, or in effect though, they must have exercised the gift of prophecy to benefit the local church community to which they belonged. Now this aside, we contend then that the gift of prophecy 
referenced in the New Testament as it pertains to a local church is concerned with predicting of the future and revealing of hidden facts. Those are the two things I want you to uh, you know, hold on to when we're talking about prophecies at, a, at the present time. Predicting the future and revealing hidden things. Now, so this assertion, of course, is in keeping with the situation Apostle Paul described as he envisioned the gift of prophecy at work in a local church, as we read a passage that I cited previously, but let's go back to it. Uh, you may just now listen. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 24 and 25. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 24 through 25. Again, like I said, uh, we're just going to read through more and more of this, and eventually, by the grace of God, we will get to it. It is, but if an unbeliever or someone who does not understand comes in while everybody is prophesying, he will be convinced by all that he is a sinner and will be judged by all. And the secrets of his heart will be laid bare. So he will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. So the unbeliever will be convinced of God's presence within the church if what is hidden in his or her heart is made clear through the gift of prophecy. Now it is not merely the preaching of the word that may deal with individual sin, but that of describing something specific the person involved with prior to coming to the local church. Now, I have a case, I've read from uh, one, some of the books of the missionaries and of a case where a person came in and had been involved in sexual immorality the previous night and somebody got up and said, bam, bam, bam. And that led to the person's salvation. That's what, what the missionaries reported. Because the man was shocked. No one saw me. But, you know. Anyway. So, my thing is this. Will it not be beneficial if, say, there was one with the gift of prophecy who predicted of a coming plague so that believers in that area will prepare to avoid suffering shortage of supplies or as other people do? Will it be beneficial? So, the fact remains... There is no scriptural basis for thinking that the gift of prophecy in the way we have explained no longer exists. There is no scriptural basis for that. Now, to this ending, I'm going to provide you several examples of recorded activities by believers in the past outside the scripture that you then can judge if they are indeed the gift of prophecy. You make, you, you make the call. I'm just going to provide you the examples, the information. Anyway, here's the thing. To judge the validity of a prophecy, two factors must be considered. Two factors. Fulfillment 
of a given prophecy and the content of the message of the prophet. Those two things we have to look at. The fulfillment and the content of the message of the uh, prophet. Now here is one of those things. Once people become involved in deception, they do not listen to facts. And the facts may stare their face, they ignore them. Now the reason I say this, uh, now they don't come, but many years ago, when the Jehovah's Witnesses they would knock on my door. One time I just pinned them down and said, Oh, but Russell said this and this and this and this, and it didn't come true. So he's a false prophet, according to the Bible. And I, re- I went to this one, I read it to them, the person I'm about to read, and well, they say, well, yeah, that happened in the past. I say, so he was a false prophet. So what will you believe him? Why do you accept anything that comes from the mouth of a man who is false? They didn't have an answer. Yet they are following him. When clearly he was a false prophet. But you see, that's the thing people, people don't really, once they lock up their mind, they don't care. You can tell them all the truth. They don't pay attention. They just hear them with whatever is in their mind. Anyway, the test of fulfilling a, a prophecy as determining whether it is true is that stated in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 21 through 22. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 21 through 22. And hold on to Deuteronomy because the next passage is also in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 21 reads You may say to yourselves, How can we know when a message has not been spoken by the Lord? If what a prophet proclaims, in the name of the Lord does not take place or come true. That is a message the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken presumptuously. Do not be afraid of him. So you, that's the way it is. Did it come true? That's one. That's one. It's not the all, only one. But that's a first step. There's a second one. The fact that a prophecy then is fulfilled does not necessarily mean that it is to be accepted as true. The second test must be applied. Now this second test involves the content of the message. Now if the message involves anything that impugns the character of God or that leads to idolatry, then such a prophecy must be rejected as false. It is this test that is given in Deuteronomy chapter 13, verses 1 through 5. Deuteronomy chapter 13, verses 1 through 5. Now remember what I say. I'm going to give you examples of recorded prophecies. As the Bible, so that you can judge. I'm only giving you what will help you make the judgment. So they, I've given you the main criteria you look at. Did they come through? Did the message contradict anything about God? 
or his word. That's what they have written. So this is what we have. That's what we have right here. In Deuteronomy chapter 13, beginning of verse 1 reads, If a prophet or one who foretells by dreams appears among you and announces to you a miraculous sign or wonder, and if the sign or wonder of which he has spoken takes place, and he says, Let us follow other gods, gods you have not known, and let us worship them, you must not listen to the words of that prophet or dreamer. The Lord your God is testing you to find out whether you love him with all your heart and with all your soul. It is the Lord your God you must follow and him you must revere. Keep his command and obey him. Serve him and hold fast to him. That prophet or dreamer must be put to death because he preached rebellion against the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. He has tried to turn you from the way the Lord your God commanded you to follow. You must purge the evil from among you. Now, the, sec- this, the second test, though, of the message, as I've me- mentioned, though, at the present time, involves what the prophet holds or teaches about the person of Jesus Christ. This, you know, the, if the Jehovah's Witnesses had applied that, they would also have known that that man, uh, Russell, who is the founder of the Jehovah's Witness, that he was a false prophet. They would have known that. Now, this is the case we use today as part of that in First John chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. That is what a person, whoever prophesies, Look, listen or hear what he says about the person of Jesus Christ. If he doesn't really say correctly what the Bible says about him, that person must be judged to be false, regardless of whether even if what he, he or she predicted comes true, the person must still be considered false. First John chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. It is, dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone into the world. Now, if false prophets have gone into the world, there must be true prophets. Otherwise, they won't be warned. This is how you can recognize the spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. In other words, really, if you expand on it later on, read through uh, that, all it means is a person who uh, denies the deity of Christ, who denies his true humanity, cannot be a true prophet. That again, that's why I said if the Jehovah's Witnesses apply that, they will know that they are in deception, but they don't know that. So with these two facts then, that I've given you how to evaluate what I'm about to tell you, or I'm, the examples I'm about to cite, you now can evaluate them. So, we begin with the examples that, to me, typify the exercise of gift of prophecy that occurred in the 16th and the 17th centuries as given in the book. Title, 
discourse what is by John Howie. Now, my first example was with a man, George Wishart, Wishart that lived between 1513 to 1546, a Scottish Protestant reformer and one of the early Protestant, uh, Protestant martyrs born at the stake as a heretic. I know the many of those Church of uh, England and Roman Catholic, they, a lot of uh, pastors who preached the gospel, who were true to the Bible, they were born as the heretic. So he was one of them. Now, on one occasion, he rebuked the people at Haddington for their neglect of the gospel. So, he warned them, and I quote, that so and fearful would be the plagues that should ensue that fire and sword should waste them, that strangers should possess their houses and chase them from their habitations. End of quotation. That's one of his first, one of his prophecies. He told the people of Haddington what's going to happen. Well, he remember I said this man lived between 1513 to 1546. What he said was uh, were fulfilled in uh, 1548, two years after his death. So this prediction was fulfilled 1548 when the English took possession of the town while the French and the Scots besieged it. So what he said was true, even though he's gone. But not just because of that, he was a man who preached the gospel. And that's one of the things he wants. So I, I don't see how, what you can fault him. Anyway, a second example of the exercise of the gift of prophecy in the period we stated was John Knox, who was influenced by George uh, Wishart. He was, of course, the founder of the Presbyterian Church of Scotland, uh, John Knox. He was not only a great preacher of the word, but also a prayer warrior. That it was reported that the Queen Reg, uh, Regent in his time had once stated that she was more afraid of his prayers than of an army of 10,000 men. I tell about the man. He made several predictions that were fulfilled. When Queen Mary refused to come, and here someone, he predicted that she would yet be obliged to hear the word of God, whether she would or not. In other words, she's going to hear it, whether she likes it or not. Now this prophecy was fulfilled during her arraignment in England. When she was moved down to be tried there, the uh, Queen Mary had the gospel preached to her. So, you're going to, so that was fulfilled. So that shows that what this man, in my judgment, said he was the, a true prophet. On the 
25, uh, 24th of January, 1570, while in the pulpit, John was handed papers that contained names of the sick that need prayer, along with a note from a Mr. Thomas Metland, who gloated over the murder of all of Moray, that was considered a good man by him and others. Now, after his sermon, he predicted, there is, quoting what he said, there is one in the company who make it that horrible murder at which all good men have occasion to be sorrowful, the subject of his mouth. I tell him, he shall die in a strange land where he shall not have a friend near him to hold up his hand. End of quote. That's what he predicted. Now, although Thomas thought the man who had this, he thought that uh, John Knox was raving mad, but this man Thomas died in Italy on his way to Rome, having no man to comfort him. So I could cite more of John Knox's prediction that were fulfilled in, as was listed in those books, but the two I have cited are sufficient to establish that he had the gift of prophecy. That's all I'm trying to say. These are things happening almost close to 2,000 years after the church, the early church. So it can, you know, I'm not sure how people are dismissing this. But anyway, so I'm not sure, like I said, how anyone would deny that John Knox did not have the gift of prophecy. Since his preaching of the gospel was sound and his life exemplary, and his predictions were fulfilled. Look, remember the test I gave you before I started giving you the examples. He met all, all the tests. So I'm not quite sure how somebody is going to dismiss that. So anyway, I have mentioned only two, uh, uh, only two, these men, in the period of uh, 16th and 17th centuries, that exhibited the gift of prophecy. There were many others during this period, such, such as John Davison and John Semble, among others, that could be cited as those who exhibited the gifts of prophecy by space and time keeps me from doing that. So let me continue to a different century. Now there was the case in the 19th century in the United States of a clear demonstration of the gift of prophecy by a preacher named Arthur Powell, who lived in Philadelphia, and this incident was reported by Bushnell in his book, Nature and the Supernatural, as coming, as constituting 
the one system of God. Page 463. And that's why God is. Now this preacher, Arthur Howell, was described as a man of an impeachable character who displayed integrity or honesty in all he did. Now as the story went, this preacher was on his way to Germantown one Sunday morning when he encountered a funeral procession. It was then revealed to him that the body in the coffin was that of a woman that he knew nothing about but who had died and who suffered greatly because of suspicion of a crime she did not commit. In other words, the community she lived had already concluded she did it. Whatever it was, we don't know. But they all, you know, you know how people do. They talk, yes, yeah, we hear, we hear this. And so they keep saying, yeah, she did that. Whatever the crime, we don't know. So, this preacher, Otto Howell, he was then compelled to attend this funeral service because of what was revealed to him. So he went in. At the end of it, when they finished the whole funeral service, he asked permission to speak, which was granted. Then, he proceeded to say that the neighbors of the disease had suspected her of a crime she did not commit. Even though, I mean, this woman keeps saying, I didn't do it, but people don't believe you. Once they make up their mind, you can, can cry all you want, they're not going to listen to you. So she did not commit. And that had troubled the woman greatly. But that in a few weeks after her death, her innocence will be revealed. That's part of what this man, this uh, pastor was uh, prophesying about. So he continued to assert that a few hours before her death, that she had spoken with another preacher who was present in the audience. Now remember, this is a man who came from a different town. And he's now talking. This is a group of people having funeral service. And he said, there's a preacher here too who had had a conversation with this woman before a few hours before she died. Continuing, see, then he disclosed the conversation between the woman and the preacher. When he finished speaking, the other preacher, the one who was actually involved, the other preacher got up and said, and I quote, this again, is, this will be from page 464 of the same book I cited. He said, I quote, I do not know who this man is or how he has obtained the information on this subject. The certain it is that he has repeated word for word a conversation which I suppose was known only to myself and the deceased. 
End of quote. Now, according to the prophecy of Howell, information came later that cleared that woman's name that she wasn't guilty of anything. Now, here is the thing is, you have, you know, you think about it. This happened in the 19th century in Philadelphia. <laughs> Pennsylvania somewhere. So you can think about these things and say, this is almost 2,000 years after the early church. Okay. Now, other examples of what seem to be the prophetic gifts in action have been reported in the late uh, the 1990s and early 2000s. And there was the case of what seemed to be a manifestation of prophetic gift that was reported by Dr. Jeff Louis, a graduate of Dallas Theological Seminary, the senior pastor of Sunset Church in San Francisco, California. Do you know why I say that? California. Because most of you think, just because somebody is in California, he must be in hell dump. No. There are fine believers there. It just doesn't mean it. Anyway. So that's why I made that uh, stress on that. Anyway, according to him though, one Sunday morning, a fiancé of a member of his church was introduced to him. It was usually his practice to meet frequently with engaged couples, but in this particular case, he felt compelled to call the young woman and ask if that was an arranged marriage. He was right, and the woman had asked him who told him, to which, of course, the pastor indicated no one, and he was not surprised that God could give such knowledge to him. Now, the same pastor narrated a story told to him by his church member. Now, this church member had a co-worker who was chronically ill, but one day, the church member approached her and said, and quotes, quoting, in three days, you will be well. In three days, you will be well. Now, he was surprised at what came out of his mouth as the co-worker was. Now, the man prayed for the co-worker for three days. And on the third day, the co-worker became well as the man had predicted. Eventually, the man told his uh, full story to the woman that was made whole about what happened. This led to the conversion of the woman And so the pastor writes, and I quote him, this is recorded in a book that's edited by uh, Daniel Wallace, who was uh, the Greek uh, scholar from Dallas Theological Seminary, and William uh, Sawyer. There's a book that they edited, it's called, Who's Afraid of the Holy Spirit? That's a question. Who is afraid of the Holy Spirit? That's what I'm quoting from. Page 236. Quoting, and this is what what I'm quoting. It reads, 
What prompted this man to say such a thing? That's the question. I'm convinced that it was the Spirit of God. So I do not know how else to explain this particular event other than to admit that prophetic gift is still in effect. I don't know how you can explain it any other way. Now these examples of prophetic utterances we have given do not mean that there are no examples of prophetic utterances that are doubtful and may in fact be false. In the 12th century, it is reported that the spirit of prophecy broke out almost simultaneously in the convents on Rhine and in southern Italy. Now the most notable persons who claimed the gift of prophecy during this period were Hildegard, abbess of Benedict Convent of Bingen, and Joachim, the abbot of Flor. Now, but we will not uh, comment on, we will just, we will really only comment on Hildegard, who claimed to have received vision from her childhood. When she was 40, Two years old, she claimed of having received her visions, not in dreams, nor in sleep, nor in a frenzied state, but while she was awake and in pure conscious state, using the eyes and ears of her inner being according to the will of God. Now she was recognized by some as being able to disclose heavenly secrets through the illumination of the Holy Spirit. She was recognized as a godly woman who performed many miracles, sometimes by prayers, at other times by simple word of command. She was grieved over the low moral condition of the clergy and focused people's attention to the scripture and the Catholic faith as the supreme fronts of authority. Furthermore, she warned her audience not to look to the priests for salvation, but to Christ. However, her predictions that the Catarite, that was a, a group of solid believers at that time that were, that were completely opposite the Roman Catholic. The Catarite, he she predicted that they will be used to stir up Christendom to save purification that did not quite come through as she predicted. So that means, at that point, she's false. Although some of her prophecies came true. Another individual that claimed to be a prophet in the closing decade of the 15th century was Gerolamo Savaranoria. I can remember pronouncing well, but who was born on September 21st, 1452, in Ferreira, and died May 23rd, 1498, in Florence. Now, by all accounts, he was considered 
one of the most noteworthy preachers of righteousness since the time of Apostle Paul. That's the way they describe him. He was a student of Augustine and Thomas Aquinas, those famous uh, theologians of first century and so on, who emphasized, this man emphasized the study of the Bible in the original languages of Hebrew and Greek. In addition to preaching, he wrote tracts on humility, prayer, and the love of Jesus. Now we are told that at the time of his greatest popularity, tens of thousands of people flocked to hear him preach. Now it is not only that he was a great preacher, as we are told, but he also claimed to be a prophet appointed to convey special communications from God. He claimed to have received the message in March of 1495 on a visit to Paradise concerning the promise of a period of prosperity in Florence preceded by periods of sorrow. Now, what makes this message to me suspect in my own understanding is his description of Jesus being in the arms of Virgin Mary during his visit to Paradise. Soon as I read that, I said, false. That alone. I mean, every other thing doesn't mean he, yes, he did all that, but as soon as he went to this, that's false. That Jesus is at the hands of Virgin Mary. In other words, you can immediately know, dismiss that. That cannot be true. Because that's the heresy of the Roman Catholic truth coming through. Anyway. Of course, uh, Savonarola gave four reasons he believed he was a true prophet, which are, let me give you his reasons. These are his reasons why he believed he was a true prophet. His own subjective certainty, the fulfillment of his predictions, their result in helping on the cause of moral reform in Florence and the acceptance by good people in the city. He argued that his prophecies could not have come from astrology, for he rejected it, nor from morbid imaginations, for this was inconsistent with his extensive knowledge of the scripture nor from Satan, for Satan hated his sermons and does not know uh, future events. Now, in spite of these justifications, the truth is that some of his predictions came true, such as the prediction 
of the political revolution in Florence and the coming of Charles VIII from across the Alps, but others did not come true, especially his prediction in May 3rd of 1495 of speedy conversion of the Turks and Moors. That did not come true. So it should not be surprising that uh, this did not come true because these are some of the ones he claimed he received uh, as a revelation from Virgin Mary when he went to the paradise. So immediately you can say, this man, yes, he preached certain things, but some of the things that he uh, said were false, and so he cannot be accepted as a, a, a man with the true gift of prophecy. In all, it appears though that uh, his claim then of being a prophet runs into uh, difficulty when subjected to the full test of the scripture about a true prophet. Another example of false claim of the gift of prophecy was found among a group of three men known as Zwicka. Uh, they were known as the Swika prophets under the leadership of Nicholas Storch that came into uh, notice in the what they call Christmas of 1521. Now they were considered a sect of local fanatic Lutherans. Now they taught that God spoke directly to people and revealed his will through visions and dreams rather than through the church or through the scripture. That's what they were teaching. Now, Storch asserted that the angel Gabriel had appeared to him in a vision saying to him, and I quote, and of course, all this I'm giving you is from the history of the church, volume 5, beginning at page 370 by Philip Charles. Anyway, uh, Such asserted that the angel Gabriel appeared to him in a vision, saying to him, quote, Thou shalt sit on my throne. Therefore, it was, it was not surprising that he saw himself as the head of a new church designated by God to complete the reformation left unfinished by Martin Luther. They predicted that within five to seven years, the talks will invade Germany and destroy priests and all the godlets. This, of course, was not fulfilled. Now, so we have cited examples of those whose prophecies were not fulfilled to caution that there were false prophets in Israel, as there were false prophets in Israel, and in the early church, that there are false prophets today. But that should not be used to argue 
against the existence of prophetic gifts in the church today says no direct statement regarding each cessation is given in the scripture. Well, first we'll deal uh, more with this prediction of each cessation when we get to the 13th chapter of First Corinthians when the Lord get, uh, permits us to get here. But I want to end this by something and I, when I say this, I, make it, I want you to be very clear. I do not claim to have a gift of prophecy. I don't claim that. However, I have, in these many years as a, a, a believer, seen what I call prophetic utterances or inspiration. And sometimes I did not even know that's what it was. Until it all came through. So I'm going to give you one illustration. Like I said, I've seen so many. And I'm talking now personal. It's not somebody told me. It is what I experienced. Many years ago, there was uh, a young lady, very serious, with learning the word. Very serious. And uh, I talked regularly. In fact, I talked with her weekly. She was so devoted at that time. Something happened. One, she wanted to go on a cruise that has to do with all these uh, holidays and when you have a spring break and all that. In my way of doing things, I didn't. I just told her it was not a good idea. That's the way I said it. I didn't say don't go. I just said, I don't think it's a good idea. But she didn't pay attention. And she went. And as soon as she came back, she was a different person in terms of her devotion to the Lord. Now this lady, after a while, Staying here, she moved away. I was still, not necessarily given, keeping contact as I used to, but I still had some kind of contact. And this is one morning when I was studying. Usually, as most of you know, I don't want anyone to call me before 2 p.m. any day. Neither do I want to call somebody unless by, if I call it, if it's an emergency, yes, call me. Other than that, I don't want that because I don't want to be distracted. So I don't call, I don't receive calls. However, this particular morning, around 10 o'clock, about 10 o'clock, the Holy Spirit keep prompting me, keep pressing upon me, call this lady. I didn't know what I was going to call her about. And I just wouldn't do it. And he just kept pressing me. Call this lady. So I picked up the phone, called the lady. And as I began, suddenly, this is what I noticed when it's all over. All I know was came out of my mouth. I said to the lady, you are playing with fire. And that fire is going to burn you. When I say that, 
I was thinking, in my mind, figuratively. In other words, here is a believer whose life has become reckless. And I'm, so I'm just giving a warning. As I thought, as a human being, I thought I was just giving, as a pastor saying, be careful the way you're going. But the words that came out of my mouth shocked me. Because, first of all, the voice that I speak with people changed. It wasn't the same voice. Because after I said that to her, I was in shock myself. Because the voice I used was, I mean, those who know how I speak, know that's not my voice. And I told her, if you don't take care, if you're not, if you're not careful, you're going to be born with fire. Three days later, this lady, this young lady, had an actual lateral burning of fire that he took some grafting from her leg to mend the part of her body and also that were burnt. Now, you make you judge what that is. Now, I don't, like I said, I'm not saying I have the gift of prophecy, but I do, I have experienced many, many years as a believer what I call divine inspirations. But uh, what I told that lady, didn't think in that way, but that's exactly how it happened. So the, my point of raising that is to show that, yes, there's still inspiration. God can bring words out of your mouth. I didn't, at the time I told her, I didn't think, you know, except that I was shaking to my core, so to say, because my voice changed and everything. I just didn't know. I was just, was it me speaking to this lady? But yes, all this is just a proven point. That the divine inspiration is still going on to today. So when you, people can open their mouth and God can speak things. And it still happens with believers. So there's no need, there's no reason to say all spiritual gift of prophecy has ended. I do not have any reason from the scripture or otherwise to support that. Let's pray. As we end our study this morning, there may be someone here listening or someone over the internet listening and you're not a believer. Which means if you die now, you go straight into the lake of fire. Hell is a horrible place. It is so awful. Because it's a place where nothing good from God comes in. It's not a place you go after one year, two years, three years, you come out. This is all eternity. It is horrendous. It is horrible. It is so painful. That the Son of God, who created it, came down in order to make a way that you don't go there. So he came and lived among us sinful human beings. Although it was a torture for him to live with sinful people. Yet, he did all that because he loves you. So, when he came to this planet... To prove himself that he is the son of God. He taught like no one has ever taught. He healed 
like no one has ever healed. He did miracles like no one has ever done. All of that to prove that he is the son of God. So he made certain claims. For example, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. He said, I am the life and resurrection. If you die, you will live by faith in him. So when after making all this claim, here comes a group of people to arrest him. And when they came, he just asked them a simple question. Who are you looking for? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. They said, I am. As soon as he said that, they hit the ground. But he gave them permission. And they got up. He said, if you're looking for me, call me. But let these ones go. That's his disciples. You see that love overflowing. And so he gave himself. And they marched him into the Sanhedrin court, so to say. Tried him. Proved everything. Nothing that can be proven. Because he is the son of God. No one could say he's a sinner. No one could say he did something wrong. And they scratched to find an excuse. None, but he was condemned to death. So they handed him over to the Romans with the hope that he'd be crucified. Eventually they got their way. And once he was pronounced to die on the cross, he was handed over to the Roman soldiers who were skilled in the art of torture. So they used those whips with sparks upon them. They hit, they draw, and blood would gush out from the body of Jesus Christ. He wouldn't say a word. He didn't complain. And eventually, after making mockery of him, they gave him his cross. And he started crying to Golgotha. On the way, he staggered and fell because for 24 hours, he had no, had no sleep. Someone helped him and he was taken to Golgotha. There, they laid him on the ground and put him on that cross. Held him firmly, tied him, and began to drive those nails on his hand. When they drove those nails on his hand, on his feet, my sins, your sins were responsible. Yet, the Son of God did not make any cry. None. He didn't complain. And they lifted that, sank it to the ground. And they had a more part of his body. He still no, no sound, nothing. But the last three hours when my sins and the sins of the whole world, your sins, were being judged upon the Son of God. It was so unbearable that he let out that cry. Eli, Eli, Lama Sabakatane, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was forsaken that you may be brought in. He was forsaken that you may have life. How? The Bible said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. What are you going to believe? The Bible again says this, I written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Believing in him, you'll have life through his name. If you believe that he died and was buried, rose again the third day, you will receive eternal life. No matter how sinful, no matter how you have, whatever your sins will have been, they will wipe clean, and you will have a clean slate to spend eternity with God. So trust in Him, and you'll be saved. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the study of Your Word. We pray that God, the Holy Spirit, will challenge us to the things that we have studied, so that we be people who are well informed about the Scripture gifts. This is our request in Christ's name. 
Amen.